I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Zindel Siegel, PhD. Zindel is a distinguished professor of psychology and mood disorders at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He's also a friend of mine. His program of research characterized psychological markers of relapse, vulnerability, and affective disorder, which in turn provided an empirical rationale for offering training in mindfulness meditation to recurrently depressed patients in recovery. He has authored over 10 books and 180 scientific publications, including The Mindful Way Through Depression, and recently co-founded MindfulNoggin.com, which I just think is the best 
website name forever. And I was just on it, taking a look at it. Uh, it's M-I-N-D-F-U-L-N-O-G-G-I-N.com, a public-facing website that increases access to mindfulness-based clinical care for managing depression and anxiety. Welcome to the podcast, Sindel. Hi, Sharon. It's great to, I was trying to think how long ago it was that I was in your house in Toronto. Feels like, of course, now everything feels like forever ago. Yeah. But it was a while. It was some years ago. About seven, about seven years ago, you know, and I follow so much of what you do, but it's nice to be able to peek out from time to time and actually speak in person. It's wonderful. And I mean, your work has always been uh, impressive and inspiring and important, but I think about the time that we're in and how uh, necessary it is that people realize there's a path maybe available or there's uh, there's some light at the end of this tunnel or even in the middle of it. Absolutely. I think that uh, words like affective disorder and depression and recurrent this and recurrent that are very big words. Mm-hmm. But I think us are feeling aspects and elements of these disorders in their own ways, even if they're not very intense, sadness, worry, uncertainty, apprehension. Everyone's living with these, and I think everyone is struggling or utilizing certain ideas for looking after themselves. Some are probably very helpful. Um, Some may be more routine. But I think that there are things that people can do, and there are a lot of resources that can help them. You know, one of my uh, interesting uh, recollections that in these days, it's not exactly a recollection, but realizations, I had to look up somebody's email address. And so I was, you know, going through all these files and I realized that the last time they had written to me was New Year's Eve last year. Mm-hmm. And it was all like, I can't wait for 2020. You know, 2019 has been so tough and, and, 2020, I can just tell it's going to be like a new beginning. It's going to be this this sense of renewal and possibility. And then, of course, it's been just such a difficult, difficult year between anxiety and loss and grief and anger and so many things. And so uh, even just the kind of shattered expectations and disruption, I think, are, are giving people a lot to deal with. And the mental fatigue that comes with knowing Um, as well as we're doing, we'll have to keep on doing this for another stretch of time before things may change for the better. Yeah, I find that really fascinating because it's both from the meditative point of view, uh, let's try not to get lost in anticipation, you know. You you can only deal with what's in front of you in a way. And Mm -hmm. as soon as you start adding that seemingly endless future, it's uh, such a feeling of hopelessness. But uh, if we can catch that, then there's, there's a much greater sense of possibility. But still, this is a long time. I was listening to a podcast the other day um, from, uh, it was sort of a political podcast, and, and that got me into this YouTube loop of, of these <laughs> particular people's previous podcasts. And I I came upon a podcast that they had recorded two weeks into the pandemic and they were freaked out, you know, and they were saying, one guy said, it's been two weeks since I saw anybody other than my wife and my dog. And I thought two weeks, you wait, you know, early days. Yeah. It's quite a lot. So I want to, I want to talk about so much with you. Mm. Um, 
to start with, you know, what led you to specialize in this work? Um, you know, my path coming into it wasn't fairly straightforward in terms of having a meditation background, being enamored with meditation, and then saying, well, how, if, how can this help other people, people coping with depression or anxiety? It actually came through um, an analysis of, of what it is that depression does to people's minds, especially states of mind that are very difficult to step out of and uh, carry with them um, a lot of risk of depression coming back and repeating. And the states of mind that are possible if people practice meditation, especially mindfulness, to develop some capacity for stepping back and observing, befriending, and knowing these states of mind differently. And the most direct way I had of touching into that was recognizing that from time to time, this happens in psychotherapy. This happens in cognitive therapy, which is a treatment that has been shown to be really effective for treating depression. But it happens on a hit or miss basis. It happens depending on what kind of therapist you have, what kind of background they have, if, if, if they do certain things and if they leave other things outside of the therapy office. And I felt that the capacity to train directly in skills that allow people to step back and watch their emotions or be closer to their experience without being fully identified with it is exactly the sort of training that could help people who have had depression or who have had anxiety work differently with their emotions and um, states of mind that often keep them at risk for these episodes and disorders coming back into their lives. Do you find that the, the very term mental health is still um, stigmatized in some way, or does it seem to you that in general the attitude toward that has changed? You know, I think that it's changing. I think that people are more willing to acknowledge that um, celebrities, prominent personalities, and others um, have struggles with mental health issues and they can point to them. I think that at a personal level, there still is a lot of stigma. Um, and I think that part of that is uh, systems of care that make it hard to access care for disorders like depression and anxiety. And I also think that the reactions of people around someone who is suffering still difficult because, um, you know, to use a cliche, when you've got an, a broken leg, everyone can see that you're impaired or in some ways um, struggling. But if you're depressed and you're having trouble concentrating or if you're unable to stop ruminating, people expect a different kind of response, you know, one of like personal fortitude or willpower rather than saying, you know, your mind is kind of um, taken over or hijacked by something. And um, maybe you need to get some help in allowing yourself to step out of that. Now, I was talking to somebody um, with a history of pretty severe, I guess, clinical depression. And uh, he was saying how so many people kind of shied away from him when he was in in that particular state, you know, when it was the most intense. And he said, it's almost as though they're afraid of catching it from me. And I said, well, I don't know 
if that's so much the fear is kind of not knowing what to say or not knowing what to do. And then he said, well, they're not responsible for making me happy, you know, which was, which was also very interesting. You know, it's that loss of control that I think culturally in many cultures, certainly in the U S um, is something we're taught is frightening, you know, and, and if you can't control even an external situation, you're, you've kind of failed in some way. And, and so I think we enter with a lot of conditioning, you know, when it's our own suffering or difficulty, uh, we add, we tend to add shame and, and the sense of failure to it. When it's someone else's, we think this is intolerable or this is unbearable. They should leave, you know, something like that. And, you know, a lot of the difficulty comes from the fact that symptoms are often expressed interpersonally. Mm -hmm. They may have an impact of pushing people away who are in your support system, frustrating people who try to help and their efforts come to naught, and all kinds of other ways in which people can find themselves increasingly isolated, even when they're met with good intentions. Because the thing is, you can't snap out of it. It's not a, a willpower question. It's not if you were a stronger person or had a more robust personality. There are ways in which we have to actually engage with ourselves in a different way to enact routines and procedures that are working against the states of mind that depression keeps in place. And do you find kind of the the connection between maybe larger cultural trends? I'm thinking of this in two different ways, actually. Larger cultural trends and particular uh, disorders or, or conditions, you know, it, I mean, it, I was thinking of this memory just came into my mind how in uh, longer retreats or actually in any retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, mm. um, we ask people to disclose what medications they're on, you know, because it's something we should know. Uh, yeah. And, uh, in the longer retreats, you know, we're going through those forms. The forms are sent in ahead of time. And so I was going through the forms with some of my colleagues and everything is kept quite confidential, you know, just with this group of teachers. But I was going through this form, these forms and this was some years ago. It was like anxiety disorder, anxiety disorder, anxiety disorder, anxiety disorder. And yeah. I looked up and I said, what happened to all the depressed people? <laughs> you know, because it used to be, I'm taking Prozac, I'm taking this, I'm taking that, I'm taking that, you know, and it's all for depression. And I thought, I wonder if that happens, you know, that there's just, obviously there's always a mix like right now, but I wonder if there, there are just certain trends that happen. You know, may, maybe there's some good messaging that's actually uh, landing, letting people know that if they're in the, the middle of a, an episode of depression, maybe going on a silent retreat where they're secluded isolated, you know, with their internal experience may not be the best. Exactly. Option. Well, that's true too. You know, and that maybe they should wait until they're a little bit more receptive to what they might be able to work with or encounter. Yeah, no, that is very true. And I also, I'm one of the things I appreciate about like the work that you're doing on mindfulnoggin.com. I'll probably say that like a hundred times because I think it's so cute. Um, is that, you know, a retreat, an intensive retreat is just a form of practice that, you know, if you're curious about mindfulness and if you want to see if it could be of benefit, mm. there's so many different ways of practicing it. And, uh, you know, when I was practicing in India, uh, 
you know, so long ago, it was really basically the form, and it was the form we brought back to the states for a good long time. But it, it's not doesn't have sort of inherent absolute worth. It certainly doesn't have superiority, you know, to you know practicing in some other way. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I was thinking about this uh, memory that I had at the time when when myself, Mark Williams, and John Teasdale started out to commit to learning about mindfulness, you know, from the inside so that we could teach it and mm-hmm. provide it in a way that had integrity. Um, we were told at the time, you know, culturally, the only way to really get this stuff is to go on a silent retreat. Mm-hmm. And, and we were pretty much all avoidant to doing that because for whatever reasons, John had his reasons, Mark had his reasons, I had my reasons. Some of it was probably a, um, a little bit of a worry, a bit of an anticipation and apprehension. Also, there was maybe a sense of, well, we can learn it in other ways, or we're already trained, you know, therapists, or, you know, the thing that we're looking for, we might be able to find in different ways. And then I remember, and I've already, I think, told you this story, but um, guitarists talk about how they've started to learn um a piece or how they started to learn music back in the day, they would put a piece, a record, a vinyl record and lift the needle up and down, up and down when they wanted to learn a piece uh, of mm. a particular blues lick or some kind of solo. And I remember what we did was we went to a website and I ordered three copies of the mindfulness primer that you and Joseph Goldstein mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. and audio cassettes. And I would in the car, Fast forward and reverse, fast forward and reverse. It's like, hey, there's a story. Sharon was going through a metal detector at the airport, and one of the security guards found her bells and said, are you a Buddhist? And Sharon thought, well, I don't know. Am I a Buddhist? Am I not a Buddhist? And mm-hmm. like, I started to ask myself that question. And it's that backward and forwards, the commitment to, to listening and diving in that way, which eventually brought us to silent retreats later on. But there's something about just that, enthusiasm for engagement which you know may allow people to engage in in different different mm-hmm, formats mm-hmm. and the other question i had about um culture and and say anxiety and depression is do you think that different things happening in the culture give us permission to recognize that what we're going through and, and maybe even seek help for is anxiety or depression. It's like, I think about the word trauma, which one never used to use, you know, Uh, and it's kind of so prevalent now. And it's a good thing, I think, because people shouldn't feel alone or cast out because of the particular thing they're, they're experiencing, but it feels like there are just different waves that happen. I think that there are a couple of things. Some of those are um, fostered through marketing changes Mm-hmm. So, for example, direct-to-consumer marketing of medications on television uh, allow people to self-diagnose. Mm-hmm. And whether it's Cialis, whether it's di- diabetes medication, whether it's other forms of um, antidepressants being marketed more broadly, it, it, with that comes the message, depression is real, and you can assess to see if you need some help. Mm-hmm. So as depression and anxiety are becoming more legitimate um, things for people to think about, not just hypertension or cardiovascular disease. I think people are more willing to name it and to report it. Um, so, so there is that elevation of um, prominence of 
these disorders. And I think the other thing is that as we change socially in terms of our cohesion and the role of social media in providing a kind of um, a sense of connection, but not a, a very deep sense of connection, I think the rates of depression and anxiety um, generationally have been shown to be increasing since mm-hmm. the 50s. Yeah, that's very interesting because it's, I mean, look, you know, we're able to do everything we're doing right now because of technology, you know, and, yeah. uh, and yet, you know, it, it also seems to certainly have that effect. Well, how would you define anxiety or depression? You know, it's important to talk about two different kinds. There's, there's, there's a depression and anxiety that, that crosses a threshold for a clinical case. And then there's the feelings that we might all have that may surge and leaving us feeling sad or low um, or leaving us feeling threatened or frightened. Um, so I think the, the the level at which we should think about reaching out for care is when these feelings are present for a good stretch of time and they're interfering with our lives, either our work lives or our social lives. They're not feeling states that recede after, you know, a day or two, or they're tied to something that gets resolved or just, you know, dealing with um, a a burden of stress. But really the case level of depression and anxiety is um, something that's going to be around for about two weeks to a month, pretty much unchanging. And it's got to interfere with, how you're working or social relationships. And over that kind of time, people feel like it would be a good idea to speak to someone to see if, you know, you need to get some care for this. Um, I think that that's an important threshold in terms of how it shows up in the mind. I think that there are different types of thought patterns that characterize depression. When you find yourself repeatedly being very harsh, very critical, very judgmental, or buying into hopelessness or helplessness, um, there's a way in which those states of mind characterize a view of the world um, that is a little bit tinged with depressive mood. And if you're looking at things from a different standpoint of seeing everything as being threatening, being very vigilant, being uh, very aroused, being able, unable to kind of settle down at night, um, seeing everything as a, as a threat and anticipating the worst, I think that has more of an anxiety uh, flavor to it. And once again, it, it can be mild, it can be something that comes and goes, but if it's continuous as a way of um, you know, negotiating or keeping you from doing things, um, the arousal doesn't come down, then that probably crosses the threshold. So when you talk about uh, recommending exploring tools of mindfulness, uh, is that particularly with mild situations or uh, even more um, intense situations, but with help? That's a great question. Um, you know, my view feel, f- differs a little bit from the field on this. Um, my view is is to stay a little bit more conservative and to recommend that that mindfulness, especially longer practices that involve um, extended concentration. Um, be reserved for people when they've had some help and they mm-hmm. can have this on as a capstone to a, achieving a full kind of recovery. 
that can help themselves when they're no longer dealing with neural networks that are partially diminished that make it hard to concentrate or make decisions or pay attention. Um, but do it when they're actually much more available to this work. Mm-hmm. I think for anxiety, it's, it maybe is a different story. I think for anxiety, people can find smaller uh, bursts of practice or smaller mm-hmm. practices or even practices that involve more movement, less sedentary practice to be quite helpful. Um, and so I would be less cautious about using that in the course of getting some care for anxiety. But I think for depression, what I've seen is um, if people are very shut down neurally in terms of frontal lobe executive network systems, and then you ask them to sit and to practice mindfulness, it's like a failure paradigm mm-hmm. for them to do. And, and I think it would be better to to wait until they're a little bit more cognitively available. Would you think about, uh, in those cases, um, maybe a movement meditation or maybe loving kindness instead? Or do you think that just, and you don't have to sit with your eyes closed. I mean, I think that's what is so difficult, not working with a teacher who's experienced and well, yeah. in these things, you know, is that then you tend to think there's one way, you know, to do this correctly. And there's not just one way. You see, I think, I think with a teacher, um, you know, anything is on the table yeah. because they might be able to adapt practices for you that, that start very small bite size. Mm-hmm. And you can ramp up from there as you start to feel better or start with movement practice and not sit for 40 minutes on a cushion when you can't even read a newspaper. Yeah, but yeah, you might course. feel that that's the classic way of practicing, and then there's something wrong with you because you can't do that. Um, yeah, and, yeah and I mean, I think that's so the case, and it's such a um, misunderstanding. I know, and I've spoken to people when I've taught that have come up to me, and they've been long, long, long-term meditators, and they've said it's just really, really hard to sit when you're when you're depressed, mm-hmm. and they've chided themselves for for not being able to kind of motor through it and instead step away or, or practice in a different way. So if if you have a standard practice, maybe modify and try something else, walking, meditation, um, other other things. Like it's, it's, it's the adaptability that actually the depressed mind has a lot of trouble uh, working with, changing gears. Well, that's interesting because, you know, um, you know, I had a very old-fashioned, you could say, classical experience and that I had I had a series of teachers but I always had a teacher mm. and and their characters you know that they're, they're very different from one another and um you know we do tend to more remotely get attached maybe to an idea there's there's one correct way to practice like sitting for 40 minutes with your eyes closed yeah and you know I remember when uh we established the Insight Meditation Society in 1976, and Joseph and I, Joseph Goldstein and I, had met in India and had uh, the same teachers. And Jack Cornfield, at the same time, was having a parallel life in Thailand. Yeah, and we all met up in the states in '74 and began teaching together, and then established a center together. And at one point, Jack brought his teacher Ajahn Chah, who's a, a Thai meditation teacher, over here to Barry, Mass, and. Mm-hmm. And in the Burmese tradition, as you know, they might emphasize things like very slow walking and, you know, sitting for longer periods and sitting with your eyes closed. And, and the Thai forest tradition doesn't do any of that. 
they're really wow. into like the natural way. So Ajahn Chah was here and there were people doing that really slow, mindful walk. And he'd go up to them and say, I'm so sorry, you're so ill, you know, and may you get out of the hospital soon. And once that was translated, they looked completely confused, you know. Uh, it just, there's so many possibilities. So you're not excluded if you want to make the experiment. But I think you have to be really careful not to fall into those traps. And I think depression lures you into traps around worthiness. Mm-hmm. And if you really do believe that there is a pecking order in how people practice, including how you practice, mm-hmm. sitting on your cushion for 40 minutes, is, is if that's like the way to go or even even more so, like silent retreats is the way to go. Everything else is like a bit of a band-aid. And then I think because when people are depressed, they're, they're very sensitive to, am I good enough? Am I worthy? How can I avoid feeling inadequate? They're going to probably want to push to embracing, holding on to almost like a life preserver, mm-hmm. uh, forms of practice that are idealized when in fact they might be better off doing shorter practices um, you know, moving and, and, and connecting with the, the, the intention behind the practice rather than logging something and ticking it off every day. Yeah, well, this is very, very important, you know, for people to consider. And here we are in the midst of a pandemic where we're practicing physical isolation and there are these cycles of uh, change that are really out of control. And I think a lot of people are probably saying they're experiencing a severity even of of anxiety or depression that is new Mm. um and others of course with the history of of these states or maybe having a harder time accessing support and and so on so it's a tough time yeah yeah and i mean there are some things that that are coming out of it that are probably good things that aren't gonna revert back to the way they were i think the ability for people to care or um, connection delivered online mm-hmm. longer being second rate is a good thing. So being able to go to a doctor's appointment and speak to someone on the phone or to um, have the hospital visit with, um, you know, on a virtual platform is, is something that I think can continue and reach more people after the pandemic is over even working from home, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a mix of uh, so many things. And and even there's, you know, lessons to be learned, I think, about so many things, really, that are being revealed. But even, um, you know, seeing the um, kind of rightfulness of, of those feelings, not when they've reached, a you know, a level where they're really undermining your your very life actually but you know like the message and anxiety about not being able to count on security and what we thought we could count on or the sadness i mean what a sad time you know you have to really be in a bubble to to not see that you know there's tremendous suffering going on and uh you know the problem of course is is both feeling all alone as we're dealing with it and um and having the tendency to uh kind of get just overwhelmed by those feelings i i think that the more people 
see others going through similar circumstances, the easier it is to um, feel that there's some way of connecting with that so that your circumstances, your predicament isn't uh, an isolated one. And I, th I think the real challenge is how to prevent getting overwhelmed. Um, when so much of what you hear on the news and so much of the information that we're being fed has a bit of a bite to it to keep us engaged at a level of fearfulness, I think. Um, you know, there is, there is an importance of knowing numbers and knowing trends and things like that, but um, a, a lot of the news stories are recycling ways of engaging people's viewership or audience through focusing on things that aren't working or um, things that are not going to go right. And I, I find that I need to titrate my exposure to news these days because it's easy to get swept away. Do you know the the term, until I heard mindful log and it was my favorite new word, do you know the term doom scrolling? Doom scrolling, yes. Right. Yes, I hadn't known it until I was interviewed about it uh, by this journalist. I said, like, what's doom scrolling, you know? And then I realized, oh, I do it, you know? Hard not to, you know? Yeah. Because um, we're all wanting some kind of either reassurance or some kind of um, readout of where things are going to go. And often, you know, the predictions can be can be dire or very selective. Now, I first heard of your work actually in mindfulness and recurrent depression, and I'm wondering if that's still the realm um, we find, uh, in terms of the research, the most powerful effects. Yeah, yeah. So recurrent depression really means, you know, someone who, um, like when you have a flu, you've got your symptoms, you got a cold, you ride it out or you get antibiotics or you stay in bed. And then once you're better, you're better. Um, you might get a flu again a year or two down the road or six months later. But but when you're over it, you're over it. And I think with depression, what people are starting to rec recognize now is that it, it can, for a large num number of people, be um, something that returns in your life. So you have an episode of depression, you get treated or you help yourself out of it. And then you're you're doing well, you're feeling better, and then it can come back. And the more often you come back, the higher the risk is that it's going to um, show up in your life again. So this view of depression, I think, is where there is an opportunity to say, look, we have things that can get people well. We don't have as many things that can allow them to stay well. And right now, the, the best sort of standard of care is to keep people on uh, antidepressant medication for two to three years after they've gotten better. And that's a tough sell for some people because um, their side effects, um, they're feeling better. They don't know why they need to take medication. Uh, sometimes the medication runs out of um, potency. All of a sudden, something called tachyphylaxis, where the drugs kind of stop working, or you're a mom and um, or you're newly pregnant and mm -hmm. you know, you're worried about the effects of an antidepressant. Um, and therapy is really good, but, but therapy, um, when you're, you know, four months, six months, seven months into feeling better, sometimes has to dredge up things to, um, to work on. Like sometimes the negative um, self-critical thoughts aren't as loud or as insistent. 
And so the mindfulness work that we did really tried to equip people with a way of um, relating to their moods and, and thoughts and sensations in the body that didn't require that they never have those experiences, mm-hmm. but just that those experiences would no longer be the tipping point from which they would fall back into depression because they would know a different way of, of relating to them. So the people um, that you would tend to be um, doing research with or, or uh, working with would have a history of depression that they were conscious of? And, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And and they, they, they'd sort of done well enough to be considered out of the woods, but were still at risk for having a relapse, having a recurrence. So was The Mindful Way Through Depression your first book? No, The Mindful Way was a book that we wrote with John Kabat-Zinn mm-hmm. once we developed our program and had field tested it in a couple of randomized clinical trials to know that it actually made a difference. And um, so we, we wrote a treatment manual for mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and then because we learned with John initially, we observed and try to understand what John was doing in, in his work with mindfulness-based stress reduction and how mm-hmm. it could be um, made to be relevant for this particular you know, population that we were working with. We thought it would be really helpful for, for, for people to read about how mindfulness could be used for helping them with, with their emotions in a way that was very different from therapy, in a way that was very different from medication. It occurs to me that it was um, like a groundbreaking book. It's how I remember it. You know, as uh, there's so many ways in which, uh, you know, from the meditative point of view, even looking at one's state and not calling it bad or wrong or terrible or weak or something like that, but re- recognizing it as a state of suffering uh, at, opens the door to so many possibilities of how we might then want to relate to it. And to understand that sometimes the things that we add on to a difficult state only make it worse. And yeah. sometimes the things we do to avoid the state only make it worse. And that we actually do have a capacity. I mean, not when something is just overwhelming, you know, but uh, many times we do have a capacity to be with our experience, however painful, in a different way. And and that can make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, that, first of all, thank you. Um, I think second of all, it is true that what we were advocating for in the book was something that was unusual in terms of suggesting people could befriend or develop an acquaintanceship with with negative mood states, states of mind that they really wanted to get rid of, and and not in a irresponsible way, um, but in a way that allowed them to recognize that these um, states of mind have been with them for a long time, and yet at the same time they can get to know them, th- and through a process of familiarity, through a process of greeting them. Um, they can know them differently than identifying with them fully and following the kind of commandments embedded in these states of mind for seeing them in a certain way. 
you know, I listened to a podcast that you did with Steve Hayes, where you were talking about the current mindfulness movement, preaching acceptance, 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 Mm -hmm. how misguided that is. And and we actually changed in our book, the, the word acceptance, we didn't use it anymore. Instead, we replaced it with willingness or letting be. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's nice. Because because it, it, it gets at that point that you made around discernment, that inside acceptance is a moment of discernment where you can decide, do I want more of this? Do I want less of this? Will this help increase my suffering, decrease it? You know, like that moment of choicefulness when you can be with something is different than a moment of fixing or problem solving, which is really the route most of us are are used to engaging in. I'm on a, a search for a word. I also use the word negative emotion or, you know, classically one would say afflictive emotion. Yeah. But I'm also on a search for a word to substitute. I was just trying to edit someone's document in that way to sort of help hopefully take away some of that sense of judgment that these are painful emotions. These are constricting emotions, contracting yeah. emotion. I don't know the word yet, you know, but. Well, sometimes I think metaphors are really um, helpful, like, in one of Billy Collins' poems, uh, there's this term that he uses to describe his insomnia, which is my oldest enemy, mm-hmm. my own best friend. And so there's these two aspects of something that is, um, you know, a problem for him. But he, he, he knows it in, in a way that has familiarity and recognition. And at the same time, not not fully identifying it as like the only thing that, can exist at that moment in time. So one can expect uh, recurrences or arisings, and and some of these, of course, are um, brought about by circumstance. You know, Uh, I'm trying not to use the word triggered because I use, I I work some these days with survivors of gun violence, and they've actually asked that we not use the word triggered. So um, activated, that's the word. You know, some of that, of course, is activated by circumstance or look at the circumstance that we're in right now. And um, and yet there's it reminds me a little bit. I don't know that much about it, uh, about people talking about genetic expression as something that they're exploring Mm -hmm. in terms of um, mindfulness or meditation, let's say, because I want to talk about loving kindness in a minute. Um, And, uh, you know, they're. You may have a tendency, you may be uh, put together in a certain direction, but does that have to express itself in a totally dominating way is the question. Yeah, so I think what you're referring to is is people, everyone has a predisposition um, for certain kinds of symptoms. And, And for people that have a higher family history of, let's say, depression, that predisposition might leave them with a bit of a thinner skin mm-hmm. if they run into like a very stressful event it might tip them over the edge and, and and it might express itself as an inability to cope with stress depressive symptoms like being shut down withdrawing other people that don't have a family history or don't have a genetic predisposition um, could weather that stressor and and not have the symptoms of depression or they may have it for a, a while but then it kind of um, maybe normalizes and they bounce back. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those things are, you know, we're kind of born in with, with those ways in which our bodies are put together based on the families 
that we that we come from. But even even with predispositions, no psychiatric disorder is one hundred percent heritable. Mm-hmm. And even for the for the the ones with the highest degree of heritability, the um, schizophrenia, you know, the the heritability patterns are about fifty percent. And if you look at depression, heritability for bipolar disorder is is close to uh, what it is in schizophrenia, but heritability for depression is nowhere near that. Mm-hmm. And is it true that um, some of the research around mindfulness and meditation is around even if you do have a strong predisposition about uh, this not being able to kind of be pro- the most pronounced? influence on you because you have these other influences i mean what what i've seen in our work is that if you just look at a dichotomous outcome um this person who 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 did um mindfulness-based cognitive therapy over two years did they relapse or not Mm -hmm. you can look at it as a you know yes they did no they didn't but there's another way to look at it which is when they did relapse and they were practicing did it last half as long? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was it tense? Was it less disruptive to their family relationships? Or were they still able to go to work? So these are ways in which the more subtle and I think real life aspects of the work reveal themselves. For research studies, it's important to, to be able to say something along this dichotomous dimension, but there are benefits for mm-hmm. people who continue to practice. I think one of the challenges, as you really know, is People come to these courses or they buy it or they sign on for an app and then they take the course, they get the experience, but a large number of people don't continue to practice. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of leave it a little bit by the wayside. Well, thank you so much for that because one of my other bugaboos about language, which of course I do too, is um, the way we make things static. Like I was just commenting on someone else's writing, which they'd asked me to do. I didn't just go around commenting on it. And, uh, you know, and, and they were they were defining um, resilience in the funniest way. It was something like maintaining a good attitude or something in the middle of distress. And I said, I thought resilience had more to do with, like, bouncing back after losing it, you know, or yeah. something yeah. like that. And, and this idea of maintaining, keeping, and I'm going to get better. And that was the breakthrough. And I'm never going to feel this other thing again. Seems so unlikely. And almost the core teaching of meditation practice is being able to begin again. And that's going to be inevitable in life. And uh, I say the same thing that you said in another form over and over again. Don't think your meditation practice is worthless because you got overwhelmed because you you reacted because you, you know, you find your being overwhelmed by the same small provocation it's not going to last as long you will notice that if you pay attention to that you know you'll come back much sooner you'll come back much more gracefully and that's the whole point yeah yeah i couldn't agree more and you know we are also up against people's idealized views of what meditation can do for us and and the expectation that it's got to be something um a little bit magical when in fact there are elements of it that are repeatable and, and mundane, but that's actually, you know, why they're so, why, why they're so important to continue. So let's talk about loving kindness practice because so much yeah. of what you were saying about, you know, my worst enemy, my best friend made me think of, Oh, that's like loving kindness. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is an interesting point of um, 
maybe, I don't know if it's a point of departure, but it's certainly an interesting point to talk about. Um, I find that with the work that we do, we actually leave loving kindness practices out of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy mm -hmm. in a deliberate uh, way. We do feature them when we have a single uh, day retreat for people between sessions six and seven, where there is a, a formal loving kindness practice. And I think there, there are two reasons for that. One of them is um, in this population, um, there can be a significant pushback to the idea that people can wish well for themselves, mm -hmm. be approached really gingerly. And so we do it. It's not that we don't think about it, but we do it in other ways that embody an attitude of loving kindness throughout the first moment of encounter with someone all the way to the end of the program through um, through the language in the, in the guidance where we have a lot of language that is invitational, um, that provides people with permission to bring kind awareness to phenomena that are occurring in the body or things that they're noticing. We do it in ways in which it becomes sort of implicit rather than explicit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, feel very much that the, the practice of mindfulness um, in being able to turn your attention to your experience is already a radical act of, of kindness. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how it's, how it's gone on. But I know that there are people who feel like, you know, it's not saturated enough with loving kindness and, and, and <laughs> you know, like it needs to be sprinkled in a little bit more heavily because people can't taste it in the dish. That's very funny. Well, you know, people, uh, I'm not taking that personally, people, um, no, no, I'm, I don't mean, I don't yeah, mean. Yeah, no, I know. People struggle, uh, I see, you know, sometimes with the word mindfulness now because it sounds so clinical or cold uh, often. And so I hear people calling it warm mindfulness or loving mindfulness or loving awareness or kindfulness or or something. And, and yet I think a real deep understanding of what mindfulness is, as you say, will have that kind of loving kindness quite implicit. I'm wondering if you ever had people do loving kindness practice without starting with themselves. I think that's how we, we if, if, if I was um, asked to do it with, with these folks, I would start without, so I would maybe end with them, yeah. Yeah. or I would start farther away. Yeah, I, mean, I would think of that as an example of that kind of flexibility we were talking about earlier. Yeah. With, uh, I once... Again, it, you know, it depends on the purpose of your work. I once was doing a presentation with Barbara Fredrickson. One of her books had just come out, and she's a researcher in North Carolina and um, who uses a lot of loving kindness practice in her research. And, and she said something about how uh, she felt it was important for people to have some kind of positive experience with their meditation within the first couple of weeks or else they wouldn't likely continue on with it. And that was especially difficult because you start with classically, you start with loving kindness towards yourself and that's so hard for people. Yeah. And I said, why don't you start somewhere else? And she looked at me like, I can't do that. You know, she since changed her mind, but she said, I'm doing research. Everyone has to do the thing in the same order, you know? And I said, well, as a teacher with like a living person in front of me, I changed the order in 10 seconds, you know, <laughs> and, and, but we had different needs, you know, but later she came to me years later and said, you know, I changed my mind about that. I think you can change the order. 
So, so listen to this. You know, we have two editions of, of the MBCT um, treatment manual. In the first edition, there really was this, um, I guess, devotional approach to describing, you know, mindfulness, heavy emphasis on attention and on curiosity and on investigation. And in the second edition, we ended up writing a chapter just devoted to compassion and how it can become compassion, loving kindness, and how it is expressed in the MBCT program. Once again, emphasizing more of like the implicit aspects, embodied aspects of the instructor, conveying this in the language. And almost, I wouldn't say that it was justifying why not include mm-hmm. the formal practice, but it was a way of saying, look, it's there yeah. if you look and embody it and you can convey it in this way. Um, which I, I think, you know, was, was really important for us to do. Yeah, that's great. So tell me about MindfulNoggin.com. Yeah, MindfulNoggin.com is um, really a website that allows the, the treatments that we've developed and, and digitized to be available to the public. Um, we found that even with you know, this really good evidence base for mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, like randomized control trials, 3,000 people tested in the world, meta-analyses showing healthy effect sizes, equivalence with antidepressant medication. It just wasn't moving the needle in terms of this being available to people in the community. And if you're not living in a large city like, say, New York or Chicago or LA, like, forget about it. You're not going to be able to find an MECT therapist. Now, that's been um, controverted a little bit because during COVID, people have been able to connect with people remotely, but it's still this discrepancy between a very effective treatment and very few people being able to um, get their hands on it. So Sona Demigian, who's a, a terrific friend and a collaborator, and I received a number of grants from NIMH to digitize the group experience of MBCT so that people can do it from their homes. Just sit in front of a computer and go through the eight sessions once a week as if you were going to a hospital or to a clinic. And we evaluated it at Kaiser Permanente. And um, one trial with 500 patients, Sonas just finished another trial with another 500. But the only people accessing this treatment were those in our studies. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed almost like a cruel withholding of sorts. And Mindful Noggin is the same program that we've studied in our trials available to the to the public for them to um, to go through and to look after themselves in, in just the same way. The findings are really positive. Some of them are on the website in terms of reducing residual symptoms of depression and uptake of uh, you know practices that are downloadable and people continuing with that. And some of the things that we're finding, interestingly enough, is that even even though you know this is like even though it's remote and even though there's not a teacher in the room, um, people are showing the ability to develop these these centering metacognitive skills that allow them to to watch and and to observe feelings moving through the mind rather than being fully identified with them, and they're you know they're getting they're getting benefits. So. It's 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 good. I mean, we just launched, so who knows what the trajectory will be. But I, I hope that more and more people find out about it because depression is so prevalent mm-hmm. that uh, you know you're never going to make a dent by expecting live therapists to treat everyone who really needs care. 
And there's a section in there for clinicians, right? There's a section in there if people want to be trained in MBCT, they can take the same program with additional commentary and mm-hmm. uh, call out for clinicians like noticing things. And, and they watch me and they watch Sona running a group. It's very experiential and very interactional. It's not just like reading a script on the page. And there's a huge emphasis on practice. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much for all of this. I was hoping that as we end, you could lead us in a, a guided practice to close out our conversation. Thanks, Sharon. I'd love to. So this is a, this is a three-minute breathing space, which is one of the practices that, that we developed inside MBCT to help people take what they're doing on the cushion into their everyday lives. And the three-minute breathing space is, um, I think, well, you know, let me guide it, and then maybe we can have a word or two about mm-hmm. it. Sure. Yeah, without, without previewing. So let's just start by um, maybe taking a moment and adjusting the body, allowing it to to sit comfortably and to sit supported in a chair or sofa or cushion, wherever you find yourself. Maybe tuning into the sensations of sitting, the ones that are already here feeling the pressure in the soles of the feet, the chair supporting the weight of the body, hands folded or on your thighs, and feeling the spine rising up from the pelvis with neck and head balanced, just sitting. And when you're ready, perhaps shifting your attention and looking into the mind. Maybe asking yourself, what's my experience right now? What thoughts are here? What feelings are present? What bodily sensations are making themselves known? And as best you can, just allowing all of these elements to be here, watching observing them from one moment to the next as best you can. And now, if you're willing, seeing if you can let go of the contents of mind and bringing your attention now to a single-pointed focus on the breath in the body, feeling it either at the belly, the chest, or the nostrils, and allowing yourself to feel the sensations of breathing in this part of the body, the rising and lifting on the in-breath and the falling on the out-breath and just giving the mind this one thing to do, staying with the gentle rhythm of rising, lifting, opening on the in-breath, falling and contracting on the out-breath, moment by moment, as best you can.
And now seeing if you can expand your attention around the breath, allowing your attention to radiate into the whole body and feeling the whole body sitting and feeling the whole body breathing. One whole breath, one whole body, from the crown of your head to the tips of your toes, sitting and breathing. And if you feel willing, perhaps even allowing the attention to radiate outwards beyond the body, to feeling the air caressing the body or the clothes lying on the body, maybe even further outwards to fill the entire space of the room itself. Holding all of this as best you can in a wider, more open awareness. And then when you feel ready, just allowing your eyes to open and returning your attention back into the room. Thank you for doing that. Three minutes, huh? Well, give or take. Could be <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> we don't want to be too literal. Uh-huh. Well, it's... it's... Very impactful for such a short period of time, I find. I think if people practice, then the sense of being able to hold their experience in a, in a much more spacious way can, can be very helpful. And uh, this is something that is super portable, and it allows them to, um, you know, to use it whenever they feel they, they want to step out of automatic pilot or some multitasking. And, and just come back briefly. I've heard of people who go into bathroom stalls at work and just <laughs> practice just, you know, to get a couple of minutes in. Back in the days, are you in lockdown in Toronto? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know. Um, back in the days when we used to go to work. <laughs> like when we used to stalls. That's right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really fascinating. And it's so important, I think, that we have these conversations. And each of us feels we can allow our, our vulnerabilities to be acknowledged and our strengths to be recognized and, and that we not feel so alone in whatever we may be going through. And to learn more about Zindel's work, you can visit www.mindfulnoggin.com. M-I-N-D-F-U-L-N-O-G-G-I-N.com. I have to find out the history of that name someday. A big thank you to all of you who are listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Thank you, Sharon. Be well. Thank you. You too. The best. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.